everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Scoop here on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston. I am Diana Jansen, and I'm pleased to welcome Noah Weisbord, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law here at Queen's University, a researcher focusing on the role of criminal law in managing, reflecting, or exacerbating intergroup conflict. Welcome back to CFRC, Noah. Thanks, Diana. It's great to see you again. Great to see you too. Virtually, I look forward to doing it in person very soon. So we had some interesting news uh, come across our desk on Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021, where we learned that Justice Anne Malloy of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice delivered a guilty verdict in the Alex Manassian trial. Now, Noah, you're here today to talk about this trial. Can you remind our listeners who Alec Manassian is and for what crime or crimes he has been convicted? Alec Manassian is the perpetrator of the April 2018 Toronto van attack mm-hmm. that killed 10 people and severely injured 16 others. Um, it was a beautiful day in Toronto. Uh, it was a spring day. People are out on Young Street. Um, and uh, Manassian um, had made this plan weeks before to um, rent a van and kill as many residents of Toronto as possible with the van as a weapon. This is a 26 year old computer programming student. He just secured a good job as a software and mobile app developer in Toronto. Um, uh, he, he had been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um, he was also active in the in-cell online community. Uh, and so these are all kind of factors that were at play. Um, so he rammed the van down the sidewalk. He would drive onto the main road when there'd be an obstacle in the way, and then he'd get back on the sidewalk, hitting more pedestrians. Some pedestrians w- were smashed into the air as high as 26 feet mm. into the air. Um, and during the attack, he paused to post a written message to his Facebook page, which said, and I saw this in the, the court decision, which was delivered on Wednesday, private recruit Manassian, infantry 00010, wishing to speak to Sergeant 4chan, he says the incel rebellion has already be- begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and the Stacys. All hail the Supreme Gentleman, Elliot Roger. Now, Elliot Roger had perpetrated an attack, a similar attack, uh, and mentioned incel uh, in California in 2014. Um, so uh, Manassian was just found guilty uh, at the Ontario Superior Court of 10 counts of first degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. Uh, has he been sentenced yet? Uh, no, the sentence hasn't happened yet. Um, but um, so what we have now is the reasoning of the judge around uh, why Manassian's defense failed. And that's really a significance for Canadian uh, criminal law. So what strategies did the defense team take and why was the defense unsuccessful then? He basically argued the insanity defense, which is section 16 of the Criminal Code of Canada. The, so the defense team... Um, agreed that Manassian had done all of the acts or almost all of the acts that he uh, was accused of. What they took issue with was his state of mind uh, when he was uh, perpetrating the attack, the van attack. So his lawyers argued that while he understood his actions were illegal, well, Manassian understood that his actions were illegal, his form of autism spectrum disorder made him incapable of feeling empathy and they called that a necessary component of rational decision-making. But the judge rejected the argument. So Justice Malloy wrote in her decision, this was the exercise of free will by a rational brain 
capable of choosing between right and wrong. It does not matter that he does not have remorse nor empathize with his victims. Given that I don't expect that uh, the judge, or excuse me, the justice, Anne Malloy is an expert in autism spectrum disorders, were there uh, medical professionals informing this case in any capacity that you're aware of? Yes, there was a number of medical experts, and they all agreed that Manassian had an autism spectrum disorder uh, and um, that he had a rational mind. In fact, he was of above average intelligence, um, and that. Um, uh, so where they differed was, there's one expert in particular, differed from the others in the role that his autism had played in his appreciating the wrongfulness or knowing the wrongfulness of his acts. And I'm careful with the language here because this is the language from section 16. So what does it mean to know that your acts are wrongful? Do you have to know that your acts are legally wrongful? Do you have to know that they're morally wrongful? And what about if the acts are right from your particular idiosyncratic perspective, but society deems them as wrongful? So this is what uh, the justice, Justice Molloy, clears up in her decision in a very, very well-reasoned, careful, tight uh, decision. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that, what are the implications of this verdict moving forward, uh, especially when thinking about... Uh, uh, future crimes and, and criminality where autism spectrum disorder may be a factor? Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, when the judge is making the assessment about whether the insanity defense is going to succeed or not, it, it's on a balance of probabilities that she's weighing. She's trying to figure out whether this was a disease of the mind and whether the disease of the mind interfered with the capacity of the the accused to know uh, the nature and quality, appreciate the nature and quality of their acts or know that they were wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so the autism community in Canada was very concerned uh, that autism would be used as a defense um, for a horrible crime like this uh, because they were worried that it was gonna perpetuate prejudice, fear and misunderstanding. So you have Paul Finch, for example, a board member with Autism Canada who says, Autism should never form the basis for not criminally responsible finding in the court, says Finch, who's autistic himself. People on the autism spectrum empathize differently, Finch says. We don't lack empathy. Our method is different and sometimes expressed differently. Mm -hmm. And he says we're more likely to be the victims of violent crimes, not the perpetrators. The autism community is very concerned that autism is going to be abused as a defense and also that autistic people are going to be seen as dangerous, lacking in empathy, um, uh, unpredictable. Um, so this is a big worry. Okay. All right. So something to pay attention to moving forward as well. And I'm sure if the, uh, if this is used, if autism is used or mobilized as a mm -hmm. defense, uh, this case will uh, potentially inform those outcomes perhaps moving forward? Yes, and uh, this is one of the key, um, you've identified one of the key aspects of Justice Malloy's decision. In saying that autism is capable of being used under Section 16 in some cases um, as a defense, under the insanity defense, usually it would be like schizophrenia or something. That's how you would imagine that somebody who's completely disconnected from reality using the, the um insanity defense. But now the door is open for autism to be used, not in every case, but you know, you can imagine somebody with extremely severe autism 
and maybe with some comorbid issues going on there and it triggers somebody not being able to appreciate the nature and quality of the act or of knowing that the act was wrong. So there's a, a window is open for autism to be used for an insanity defense after this case. Okay, thank you so much. Now, if we can shift a little bit, one thing we haven't talked about in depth yet today, Noah, who are the involuntary celibates? You, you talked about the incels uh, right at the top earlier. Who are these people? So, okay, so this is an online community that kind of came to be known. It existed before 2014, but really came to be known around 2014. Um, and these are people that consider themselves, and uh, there's a wide range of people in this uh, community who consider themselves to be um, uh, um, incapable of finding a sexual partner. Okay. Um, and there's a great deal of resentment and hostility that they share on these online chats about their um, rejection by society. And you can see this in Manassian's kind of Facebook posts because Manassian wanted to be famous. So he says, when we, we will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys, by Chads and Stacy's, this is his Facebook post um, during the attack. He's referring to Chads. These are men that are able to have sexual partners and Stacy's. It's women who they have a tremendous amount of resentment towards uh, because of the rejection that they've sustained. Uh, this community now is identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group and part of the male online supremacist ecosystem. Okay. All right, interesting. And, uh, and heteronormative, I would expect, too? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, and um, researchers have found that it's predominantly, though it's hard to measure this exactly, um, white male people in their late teens, early 20s that are members of this community. Since 2014, there's been at least six mass murders committed by self-identified incels or people that are mentioning incel community uh, things um, uh, in their internet postings and private writing. Okay, so this sounds like to me that incel started off as a, an internet subculture, but has it seems to me that folks are starting to branch off and uh, maybe organize a little bit amongst other uh, amongst other incels or people taking individual actions in order to. Uh, level up, if you will, in their particular subculture. Indeed. Uh, What's happening here? And well, as you've just, as you've correctly mentioned, Manassian's already been named. Uh, so he's mentioned in the Wikipedia site, but he's been named as an icon by the incel community already. Um, it's interesting though, that at the trial, experts testified that he did not actually believe in the group's ideology merely used it to increase the shock value of his attack. His primary motivation, according to the judge, was to become famous. And in fact, Justice Malloy um, uh, recognized this and opted not to use his name in the decision. She called him John Doe throughout the decision instead of using his, his actual name. So you can see that the, the judge at least is trying to um, uh, prevent the propagation of this ideology through Manassian's actions. Thank you so much for that uh, for that insight. Now, how has the verdict, in your view, changed perceptions of incel communities then as well uh, amongst the greater public? I mean, I think the verdict, I'm not sure yet. I haven't looked online on the chats, but I imagine if I'm, if I'm to project that 
this is possibly, um, you know, this is one of the worst attacks by an incel member to date. Um, the only other one that I can think of that, that was as serious, I might be missing one, is the one by Elliot Roger. This is the um, California student that attacked a bunch of women at, at a sorority and killed people. Uh, and actually it's cited in uh, the Manassian um, post on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I imagine that probably among some parts of the incel community, um, there's a festive mood going on um, and they feel that they're, they're, they're making headway, which is a terrifying thought. Before we close today, have you anything else to add about the attack, the case, or the verdict? I feel terrible for the, the, the families of the people that were um, killed and injured, and people are still recovering from some of these terrible injuries. Uh, uh, one of the victims had both of her legs run over and amputated. Um, this is a terrible tragedy, and I think it makes sense to call attacks like this uh, uh, terrorist attacks. I think this was an organized act of violence and we should expand our understanding of what organized violence entails beyond Islamic fundamentalism to, to understand that there's other dangerous groups within our society. Not that we should have a clampdown or anything like that, but, but this is a phenomenon that's starting to bubble up more and more. Thank you very much, folks. We have been chatting with Noah Weisbord, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law, about the March 3rd decision by Justice Anne Malloy of the Ontario Superior Court finding a guilty verdict for Alec Manassian. Thank you very much, Noah, for joining us and, and sharing some insights about this case. Thanks, Tom. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. We're back and you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. Just moving on to some local news updates for you folks, as much as the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted all of our lives and limited our opportunities to gather with family and friends, Cataraqui Con Conservation says it is still committed to encouraging area residents to enjoy the outdoors safely this spring. Cataraqui Conservations is not able to run the normal Maple Madness festivities this year, but it has stated it wants to continue its nearly four-decade-long celebration of the history, heritage, and cultural significance of maple syrup season by offering maple-themed activities at Little Cataraqui Creek Conservation Area. After working with the local public health unit, maple programming will run for three weekends in March starting March 13th this Saturday with guided hikes and demonstration areas. The most significant changes due to COVID-19 protocols are that there will be no wagon rides to the sugar bush and no puppet shows in the outdoor center and unfortunately no pancakes. Cataraqui Conservation noted that it was an extremely difficult decision to cut back on the beloved and popular aspects of maple madness but necessary under current circumstances. Cataraqui Conservation staff still felt that it was important to offer some programming to help alleviate the winter laws and celebrate the coming of spring. As in past years, all activities take place at the Little Cataraqui Creek Conservation Area, which is located at 1641 Perth Road, which is Division Street North, just north of Highway 401 in Kingston. 
There will be guided sugar bush hikes where visitors can learn how maple syrup was made in past ages, including tree tapping demonstrations. For this activity, pre-registration is required. The outdoor center will feature its own maple demonstration area for those with limited mobility or small children who are unable to make the trek back into the sugar bush. Again, pre-registration is required. There will also be a maple shop set up on the front lawn of the outdoor center to purchase maple products, including maple syrup, maple butter, and maple lollipops. Sounds so delicious. The washrooms and snack bar and in the outdoor center will also be open. And for folks who want to wander along the various trails at Little Cataraqui Creek Conservation Area on these weekends, Cataraqui Conservation staff will provide some family-friendly activities to help learn a little bit more about the flora and fauna of our ecosystem. These include eyes-only scavenger hunts, species identification checklists, and more. The Sugarbush Interpretive Trail will not be open to those who do not have a ticket on the weekends, but the trail will be open during the week for self-guided hikes. As stated above, registration is required for all guided hikes and maple demonstrations. Face coverings are required in the sugar bush at the demonstration site and in and around the outdoor center and maple shop as per recommended guidelines by KFLNA public health and provincial government protocols. Staff will continue to work with the health unit and monitor pandemic guidelines, but please check the website or call before you attend as programs are subject to change. For more information, you can visit Cataraqui Conservation's Facebook page, follow at Cataraqui RCA on Twitter or go to www.cataraquiconservation.ca. And the way you spell that is just C A T A R A Q U I. Today is International Women's Day, and Utilities Kingston wants to start an important conversation aimed at encouraging residents to put tampons, applicators, pads, and other periods in the period products in the trash and not the toilet. Tampons, applicators, pads, and packaging belong in the garbage. Flushed period products can clog up your pipes or the wastewater treatment system and lead to costly repairs. We choose to challenge the flush it to hide it stigma because no person should be so embarrassed with their period that they flush these products down the toilet. Be hashtag period proud, says Heather Roberts, director of weight, water and wastewater services for Utilities Kingston. Choose to challenge is the campaign theme for 2021 International Women's Day. On International Women's Day, March 8th, Utilities Kingston wants everyone, regardless of their gender, to view a one-minute video on their YouTube page and share it to help end the stigma around periods and encourage proper disposal of period products using the hashtags choose to challenge and period proud on social media. Once Utilities Kingston reaches 1,000 interactions with its video on social media, it will donate 200 boxes of tampons to the local KFL and Day United Way Tampon Tuesday campaign. And these interactions can include views likes and shares so be sure to do that to contribute to an awesome initiative even if a package claims that they're flushable please do not flush wipes or period products other items do not break down in public in plumbing and treatment systems and flushing them can cause sewage backups in homes and costly breakdowns of wastewater treatment equipment which in turn can also contaminate local waterways and pose a health and safety risk so avoid flushing wipes tampons tampon applicators pads fats oils greases dental floss needles hair and other trash and here's how to properly dispose of the top offenders wipes of any kind whether that be cleaning baby hand wipes all go in the garbage even if they are claimed to be flushable it's a toilet not a trash can period products they all go in the garbage along with associated applicators and packaging even if they claim that they are flushable 
fats, oils, and greases. Wipe greasy pans with a paper towel. Put it in the green bin. Dispose of solidified fats and grease in a 100% paper cup in your green bin and dispose of cooking oil in a screw top container in your garbage. And larger food particles, use a strainer, use a strainer in your sink to catch food scraps among other solids and these go in your green bin as well. There are so many ways that you can learn about protecting your home and your health by knowing not what not to flush. Um, also, don't forget to access the Choose to Challenge video, um, see the evidence, get more information about Utilities Kingston Period Proud campaign at utilitieskingston.com. The City of Kingston, KFLNA Public Health, and Kingston Police are asking residents to continue to avoid gatherings to prevent the spread of COVID-19 as St. Patrick's Day approaches. Residents hosting or attending a gathering could receive a charge under the Reopening Ontario Act 2020, Health Protection and Promotion Act of 1990, or relevant municipal bylaws. KFLNA Public Health also issued a Section 22 order on March 4th to limit gathering sizes. Given the increasing concerns of COVID-19 variants, issuing this class order is prudent and necessary to prevent illness, protect our community, keep our schools and economy safe and open, and prevent an impact on our hospital resources, says Dr. Kieran Moore, who's the Medical Officer of Health at KFL and Day Public Health. In addition to the community risks already posed by nuisance parties, gatherings also pose a significant risk for community transmission of COVID-19. Residents are asked to mark St. Patrick's Day in a way that is respectful of neighbours and safe. Do not attend gatherings and encourage others to avoid them. As essential healthcare workers fight COVID-19, Kingston residents need to do everything they can to slow the spread by limiting contact with those who live outside of their households. University District Safety Initiative will be in effect as of 12.01 a.m. on Saturday, March 13th and will continue until Saturday, Sunday, March 21st at 11.59 p.m. Under the University District Safety Initiative, Kingston Police and Bylaw Enforcement Officers can issue a Part 1 court summons or administrative monetary penalty for behaviors under the Nuisance Party Bylaw, Noise Bylaw, or Liquor License Act. We are asking residents to act responsibly to keep themselves and the community safe this St. Patrick's Day. Common infractions could result in a ticket or fine, but attending gatherings could also spread COVID-19 and put others at risk, says Kyle Campo, who's the manager of licensing and enforcement. He continues to say that residents have worked hard to minimize the risk of COVID-19 in the community with positive results, but we're asking for continued vigilance. We're not out of the woods yet. A summary of applicable UDSI infractions is available at cityofkingston.ca slash UDSI. Kingston police and bylaw enforcement officers are authorized to issue tickets or fines for hosting or intending an indoor or outdoor social gathering of more than five people who do not live together, as outlined in the March 4th Section 22 order, and can also issue charges under the Reopening Ontario Act for hosting or attending a gathering of more than 10 people indoors who do not live together or more than 25 people outdoors. Police and bylaw enforcement can also disperse illegal gatherings when groups do not voluntarily do so by issuing additional fines for obstruction. Fines for breaches of COVID-19 regulations can range from $880 to $10,000 depending on a person's role in the breach and the number of people found at a prohibited social gathering. Fines can also still be issued for amplified noise and solid waste bylaw infractions. 
community enforcement partners continue to take a proactive approach that has assisted and continues to assist in keeping COVID-19 infection rates low. We are very mindful that the vast majority of community members respect the restrictions put in place by the government, municipal, and public health officials to keep our community safe. I am very proud of the collaborative approach we have taken throughout the pandemic by working with city bylaw enforcement and KFLNDA public health, engaging with our community, explaining why we have attended pandemic-related calls for service, educating citizens on the rules and regulations for COVID-19 safety measures, and conducting enforcement as the last resort. We are now one year into the pandemic, but it is paramount that we continue taking a proactive and consistent enforcement approach with the goal of keeping COVID-19 infection rates low throughout our community, says Kingston Police Chief Anchi McNeely. If a complaint is received, bylaw enforcement or Kingston Police will be dispatched to investigate. Residents can report potential bylaw violations to the bylaw enforcement team at bylawenforcement at cityofkingston.ca or you can call 613-546-4291 extension 3135. Please report potential COVID-19 regulation violations or after hours noise violations to Kingston Police's non-emergency number which is 613-549-4660. Please do not dial 911 as that is kept for the utmost of emergencies. Additional regulations for certain businesses also fall under the March 4, 20, Section 22 order, um, which applies to businesses that serve alcohol. Requirements include, but are not limited to, closing between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. and restricting the sale of alcohol between 12 p.m. and 10 p.m. Live performances of music are prohibited and patrons must be seated. A team of researchers, including Queen's University, Scott Lemeroux and Melissa Lafreniere, professors in the Department of Geography and Planning, have published a study in Nature Communications that examines the importance of summer rainfall in high Arctic settings. The study, Emerging Dominance of Summer Rainfall Driving High Arctic Terrestrial Aquatic Connectivity, presents a new analysis of a long-term hydrological, meteorological, and water quality data set from the Queens-led Cape Bounty Arctic Watershed Observatory in Nunavut. The work documents a shift in the importance of summer rainfall in the high Arctic setting and how the resulting shift in the timing of river flow, along with the erosive power of rainfall runoff versus snowmelt runoff, drive important changes in the amounts of carbon and mineral loads carried by Arctic rivers. Our long-term research in the high Arctic shows how changing climate and permafrost will alter river flow and water quality, says Dr. Scott, professor and Robert Gilbert Chair, associate head of the undergraduate Department of Geography and Planning. Our work emphasizes the emerging importance of summer rainfall in the high Arctic. Spring snowmelt is no longer always the main source of water, and this changes the way rivers flow and water quality changes. One of the key findings the study identifies is that there's a threshold of stream power necessary to move carbon and sediment in the rivers, which is more important than landscape changes. And these are due to permafrost disturbances, warming soils, increased plant growth, organic matter production, and mineral weathering to the aquatic environments. Researchers found that the increase in the power of rivers due to summer rainfall is an important control on the amount of carbon coming from these watersheds and that this energy threshold may explain the role that inland waters such as lakes, ponds, and rivers play in redistributing carbon in a changing climate. Although permafrost disturbance can have a huge local impact where it occurs, Lamoureux stated, the rivers need to have sufficient flow energy to deliver this impact downstream to rivers and lakes. This research is extremely novel as there is no other data set like it in the Arctic that combines rivers and comprehensive water quality measurements 
Science. The research by the Queen's team and collaborators spans 10 plus years and involves sampling by over 100 students and researchers for months at a time. This effort has allowed the research team to document the impact of the warmest years on record and includes episodes of substantial disturbance to the permafrost and landscape. These findings are only possible due to a sustained 10 plus year effort by our team at Queen's and our collaborators and highlights that it is critical to invest in long-term research sites in order to gain an accurate understanding of the response of permafrost watersheds to climate change, said Dr. Melissa Lafreniere, professor of the Department of Geography and Planning. These types of long-term studies are exceptionally rare in the Arctic, but provide critical understanding about how these fragile environments will respond to climate change. This knowledge is of particular importance for Arctic communities as they manage and adapt to rapid climate change effects to the land and water. Researchers believe it is also very important to understand how the changes in the Arctic might feed back on climate. The team continues this research, working with experts in contaminants and aquatic ecosystems to better understand the implications of the observed changes on human and ecosystem health, says Scott Lamoureux, and the study was published in Nature Communications. That's all I have for you folks today. Thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. We hope that you enjoyed our interview earlier and that you also enjoyed these new updates and that it was a little bit informative for you. Um, but thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. Don't forget um, to just keep on listening because we have some more awesome programming coming up shortly enough on CFRC 101.9 FM. But thank you so much and we hope you have a great rest of your Monday and a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.